Thank you. Um, as Liz says, I, I'm here in two capacities, really. Um, I did PPE uh, and then did an MPhil and DPhil in politics here in Oxford. So as well as being a faculty, I'm a member of faculty, I'm an alumnus. And so I have two hats on and I shall certainly be asking myself some stern questions in the Q&A afterwards. Uh, but <laughs> there are some important points that have to be raised. Um, but my topic today is reparations and the end of empire. Um, and some of you will know that this is uh, a live topic and I think you know in the near future going to be even more of a live topic in contemporary uh, British politics. Uh, plans are afoot um, to try to bring a court case um, on behalf of 14 Caribbean countries who've signed up to this court case uh, to try to seek reparations um, at the International Court of Justice um, from uh, Britain, France and the Netherlands in relation to the wrongs of the colonial period. Um, this follows, of course, the British government's decision uh, earlier this year to pay £20 million in damages um, to living victims of abuse uh, perpetrated during the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya in the 1950s. Um, now, that payment that was made earlier this year is to uh, 5,228 extant survivors. So each of them uh, get about £3,000 each. And this came at the culmination of a, uh, a case in the High Court, which the British government initially rejected. So um, they claimed on, on two grounds. Firstly, that the statute of limitations for this case had expired. Uh, and secondly, that uh, responsibility for what happened in Kenya in the 1950s had been passed to the Kenyan government at the point of Kenyan independence. So that actually, in a sense, reparations should be sought from the Kenyan government rather than the British government. Both those arguments were rejected by the court. And at that point, the British government decided to settle. And it made an apology and it acknowledged uh, the wrongdoing which had been perpetrated. But of course, it's significant, I think, that uh, the reparations in this case, the compensation payments, are to living victims. Okay, So they're to people who uh, were themselves victims uh, of torture, of sexual assault in the 1950s, um, and who are still alive. Now, of course, this raises the question about the many people who've died in the interim, and what maybe was owed to them, and what wasn't paid to them, and whether there are broader claims that can be made, uh, not just by living survivors, but perhaps by their descendants, perhaps by their wider political communities. And those, along with questions relating to survivors, are some of the topics that I want to talk about today. And the other context, I suppose, that I would flag here, um, which I mentioned at the bottom of the slide there, is the recent publication of the Savile Report into the events of Bloody Sunday and the apology, which I'm sure many of you will recall, the very full apology, which David Cameron made in the House of Commons, along with uh, committing to some compensation payments to survivors. And so one of the questions uh, which I'm going to be asking, I think, is whether um, the kind of treatment which we've seen the British state extending to thinking about the past in relation to Northern Ireland should also be applied to other parts of Britain's foreign former uh, colonies. Right? So whether that kind of commitment to apology, to reparation, if we're to be consistent, actually doesn't tie us into thinking in a much grander scale about reparations and apology on you know, pretty much a global scale. Okay, so here are four questions. So my, my aim today isn't to talk about the law. I'm not going to talk about legal principles. We can talk about that in questions that people want, but obviously I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I want to think about moral principles. And so I want to think about how we should think about connections between the past and the present. So ways in which actions which were perpetrated sometime in the past by people who aren't currently alive 
um, can have implications for the present. So how they can give rise to reparative obligations uh, on the part of present-day contemporaries. So here are four questions, just to give you an idea of where we're going, which I'm going to be picking up in what I say. So firstly, there are issues, I think, about who was harmed, if anyone, and who benefited from historic colonialism. We can think about that both in the past, and we can think about that in the present day. Secondly, can the involuntary receipt of benefits give rise to reparative obligations? So I'm going to suggest this is an important issue for one strand of thinking about historic injustice. If we think that people who are living in the present day have benefited from the actions, for example, of their ancestors, but never asked for that benefit, can the mere fact of that receipt of benefit give rise to reparative obligations to others? Thirdly, I'm going to think about responsibility. Uh, can responsibility for injustice be inherited in any sense um, for previous generations? And an important idea here is going to be that we don't have to be thinking about moral responsibility for the perpetration of injustice. We can be thinking about obligations to put right the effects of injustice. Um, and finally, uh, this question that I've touched on already, should reparations be limited to the direct victims of colonial abuse? Or can claims, for example, be advanced on the part of the descendants of victims? Okay, so now in order to do this, I want to differentiate, and this is, you know, this is not my differentiation. People, including Jeremy Waldron, have made similar distinctions to this in the past. But I think it's useful to think about different ways in which we can categorize forms of what I'll call morally relevant connections between past and present. Okay, so three different ways in which you might think the things that happened in the past might give rise to contemporary duties. So secondly, and maybe the most straightforward idea, is that of entitlement. Uh, when one agent has possession of property to which another is morally entitled. Okay. I'll say something about each of these. Uh, secondly, benefit. When one agent is benefiting and another is disadvantaged as a result of the automatic effects of historic injustice. And thirdly, I guess this is the more complicated one, responsibility. When one agent is responsible for an ongoing injustice in connection with another, understood, for my purposes, in terms of an ongoing failure to fulfill rectificatory duties over time. All right? So I'm going to claim that all three of these are potentially relevant forms of connection with the past. I'm going to focus mostly on the second, thinking about questions of harm and benefit. But then I'm going to try and tie the other two into that and think about responsibility and then a few thoughts on entitlement at the end. But I think I want to say something to put this into a, a theoretical context, really, and maybe just to reflect upon work that people have done in the past in political theory on questions about historic injustice. So um, it's quite striking when you look at theories of distributive justice that political theorists advocate. So that's to do with the distribution, the fair distribution of benefits and burdens within a society. That quite often, you'll find political theorists who have much more redistributive or egalitarian principles of distributive justice when they're talking about specific bounded states than when they're talking about the world as a whole. Right? So in David's talk, uh, he commented that when John Rawls initially started writing about political theory uh, in the theory of justice, he set his account up conceiving of a state uh, as a single bounded entity. Okay? And his question was, what do we owe to other members of that bounded society? And various theorists have put forward more or less redistributive accounts in relation to what we owe to our fellow citizens, our fellow nationals, our fellow people. 
But of course, when we start to think about international distributive justice, what we owe to peoples in other countries, what we find is rather more, I think, diversity. So there are certainly a, a class of theorists who are really quite egalitarian, or at least redistributive, when it comes to domestic justice, but are far less so when it comes to thinking about relations of distributive justice between countries. Okay? So one way to think about this, I think, is to think about the idea of inheritance, the inheritance of property. So many political theorists, of course not all, but many political theorists are broadly hostile to the idea that generations within a given state should be able to pass on substantial advantages to the next generation. They think, for example, that this might conflict with some principle of equality of opportunity. And so it's not uncommon to find political theorists advocating really quite extensive forms of inheritance tax. In some cases, 100% inheritance tax, right? So uh, liberal egalitarians of a certain stripe typically tend to argue that um, when you die, all your resources should go back into the common pool and they should be shared out again. There should be some kind of generational redistribution of resources, right? So they may differ on the extent to which choices which you yourself make in your lifetime should mean that you're entitled to a greater or lesser share of resources subsequently. But there often is this kind of commitment to at least some form of ongoing redistribution. Now what that means, I think, is that from the perspective of those theorists, what happened in the past, and in particular in the distant past, in distributive terms, really isn't that important. Right? Because the mechanisms of redistribution which they favor as an account of their principles of distributive justice are going to take, a, take account of most, if not all, of the lasting distributive effects of historic wrongdoing. Now, that may not be true in all cases, and there may be other lingering effects. But for the most part, you can see why someone who's committed to an essentially forward-looking account of distributive justice might be dubious about trying to look backwards. Right? They think that an account of distributive justice should essentially look to the future in order to work out what is owed to persons. Now, as I say, I think the account that many people have when it comes to international distributive justice is rather different. I'm thinking here of writers including John Rawls, Thomas Nagel, David Miller, Michael Walzer, many different theorists. And so often what they advocate is a much more limited form of redistribution, if any, internationally. So typically they advocate some form of a duty of assistance. They accept that we have a moral obligation to help those in need, to raise them up to some minimal level of well-being. Okay? But often the thought is that the duty, the distributive duty to people in other countries goes no further than that. And what you certainly don't have to do on these kind of accounts is to have some kind of generational, international redistribution of resources. Now, some political theorists think we should have precisely that. They're egalitarian cosmopolitans who think that we should have you know, regular international redistributions. But that picture, I take it, is quite unpopular in real world political terms. Uh, and it's controversial, certainly, even within political theory. So you have far more people who advocate much more limited principles of international distribution. OK, well, here's my claim then. I think that if that's the case, if you think that essentially when it comes to thinking about international distributions, you should have really backward-looking accounts of distributive justice that permit inheritance within peoples, which don't require some kind of regular redistribution, then you have to think very seriously about the provenance of modern-day holdings and advantages. Okay? You can't rely upon the idea that some kind of background account of social mobility or regular redistribution is going to put right historic wrongs. 
So instead, I think we have a duty to at least scrutinize the provenance of our modern day advantages and to ask the question of where they came from and at what cost to others. Okay, so the first form I said of morally relevant connection to the past that I want to talk about just very briefly is the idea of entitlement. So this goes back to this idea of inheritance that I've already mentioned. So can present day generations be said to have inherited entitlements to property currently in the possession of others? Okay, now, this is an account I say here that doesn't have to rely on any kind of counterfactual speculation. We're going to talk about counterfactuals a lot in a couple of minutes. But this kind of account doesn't have to make any kind of claim, necessarily, about what would have happened if injustice hadn't taken place. The claim is simply that an item, let's say, maybe it's a statue, uh, was taken from one group and has been retained by another group. And so you can see how there could be at least a prima facie claim that said that the present day descendants of the group from whom it was taken have inherited an entitlement to that property. And that property should be returned to them. Now, there are various objections that might be put. Um, and I'm not going to go into them now, because I take it that for the most part, this isn't really the kind of claim which is at stake in reparation claims. Um, there might be some element to it, of course. We might think about um, natural resources, which were wrongfully taken from former colonies. We might start to think about uh, wages that should perhaps have been paid uh, to slaves or to members of colonies. Uh, we might think about territory. And uh, I'm going to talk at the end of my talk today about the idea of inheriting entitlement to compensation. Um, but at the very least, it looks as if some of these claims are going to be limited. And normally, the thought is they're going to be limited to something tangible, something tangible that was taken. And in particular, there's often some doubt about how strong the grounds to territory can be established in this way, because it's often commented that it looks as if the kind of entitlement that people have to territory is itself based on sustained possession. Normally, people come to hold territory by taking it by force from someone else. Right? And so it's easy to see how you might argue that if someone else hangs on to that territory for long enough, they, rather than the prior occupiers, might come to have some kind of territorial claim. OK, so there might be some aspect of this which, which we can bring in. I'm going to come back to it at the end. But the thing I want to spend most of my time talking about is this question, the question of benefit. And I take it that this is probably the prime way in which people think about reparations um, when it rises in public discourse. Okay? There's kind of a claim that maybe some countries have benefited and others have suffered as a result of historical colonialism. Now, in some cases, only one of those claims might be advanced, and it might be uh, twinned with a claim about responsibility. So, for example, someone might argue that certain countries have been harmed and that other countries have an ongoing responsibility to make up for that harm. But what I want to focus on, first of all, is a claim that's just about harm and benefit. And so I think there are two questions we need to ask there. Right? If we're going to advance a claim or scrutinize a claim that says that because some people have been harmed and others have been benefited by historic injustice, there should be reparations, first of all, we need to establish what harm and benefit means here. Right? So who, if anyone, has been advantaged or disadvantaged as a result of past injustice? But there's going to be a second normative question as well about why this matters. Right? So it's open to someone to say, well, I accept that I've benefited. And I accept that those people are worse off, but so what? Right? I didn't ask for this benefit. It was simply conferred upon me. I don't think that gives rise to an obligation to others. So I want to say something about both of those arguments. So the context of this in relation to Britain, at least, is, I'm sure, familiar. 
uh, people will have come across many times uh, debates over Britain's imperial legacy and the effects which Britain's past colonialism has had on different parts of the world. Here are two examples of historians making positive claims about the effects of British colonialism. I'm going to read these out. Firstly, Nick Lloyd. Uh, this, he made this claim, I should say, in the aftermath, it was in 2011, I think, in the aftermath of David Cameron went to Pakistan uh, and he made a speech to a, a, a group of Pakistani schoolgirls um, sort of the, in some way acknowledged or that Britain had been responsible for all sorts of suffering in the world. And this sort of triggered one of the periodic debates we have about the lasting effects of empire. This was one contribution from a historian called Nick Lloyd. He said, the greatest experiment, he called the British Empire, the greatest experiment in paternalistic imperial government in history. British rule, he said, left a still persisting legacy of a number of priceless assets, including the English language, governmental structures, and logistical infrastructure. Far from damaging India, he said, this is in relation to India specifically, British imperial rule gave it a head start. Niall Ferguson, in his book Empire, uh, asks a, a similar question about the effects of British colonialism, and he comes to a similar answer. He writes, prima facie, there seems a plausible case that the empire enhanced global welfare. In other words, was a good thing. To imagine the world, he writes, without the empire would be to expunge from the map the elegant boulevards of Williamsburg and old Philadelphia, to sweep into the sea the squat battlements of Port Royal, Jamaica, to return to the bush, the glorious skyline of Sydney, to level the steamy seaside slum at his free town, Sierra Leone, to fill in the big hole at Kimberley, to demolish the mission of... Well, you get the idea. <laughs> now, this is contentious. This is very contentious. And many historians, as you can imagine, have tried to put a counter-narrative to this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You can imagine the counter-narratives which have been advanced um, in relation to the effects of British imperial rule. But what I'm really interested in isn't the detail of this, but it's the way in which the assessment is done. So here's an example of a historian disputing this kind of claim. Uh, Piers Brendan writing what he calls the moral audit of the British Empire. He says, the moral balance sheet of the British Empire is a chaotic mixture of black and red. All balance sheets require interpretation, but it seems clear that even according to its own lights, the British Empire was in grave moral deficit, pointing not only to the historic catalogue of gross imperial wrongdoing, but also the fact that much of the imperial legacy was failed states and internecine strife. Okay. So obviously there are many historians who make similar sort of claims, who look to the bloody history of British colonialism. But what's interesting is that when we come to look at this in the context of the debate about reparations, this is how the debate is phrased, right? People talk about the net gain or the net loss which countries suffered as a result of colonialism. That's how it's presented. Now, I don't want to suggest that that's necessarily a bad argument to have, right? But I'm not sure it's actually the right argument to have when we're thinking about contemporary reparations. Okay, so, I mean, Ferguson's claim that the British Empire was a good thing. It's contentious in lots of ways, and we might want to unpick the moral theory behind it, right? So even if you thought that the British Empire had indeed had net positive effects in the present day, it wouldn't, of course, follow from that, even in really crude utilitarian terms, that the British Empire had been a good thing, right? You would want to think about um, all the things that had happened before the present day. So you might want to take into the, the accounting all the suffering, 
all the bloodshed that happened up to that point. So even if we thought it was good in the present day, that wouldn't mean that it had been a good thing, even in, as I say, a crude kind of utilitarian way. But this kind of question as to whether it has had net beneficial effects in the present day is often taken as important in relation to the reparation debate. Because the claim that's made is if people in former colonies are now actually better off than they would have been had colonialism not taken place, how can they claim reparations? All right, so what people make is what I call here a counterfactual observation. Okay, so they compare the present day to some kind of counterfactual where British colonialism never took place. And they make a claim, typically, that says that, in fact, British colonialism has left these people better off than they would have been had this not taken place. So as I say here, there are two uh, distinct questions. Firstly, was historic colonialism justified? But secondly, whether the lasting effects of colonialism are harmful? And the thought is that the second question is the one that's relative to the reparations debate. So someone can say, of course, this should never have happened. It wasn't justified. But as it turns out, it's had these positive impacts. Now, as I say, I do not mean to endorse that claim. Right? I'm just not going to get involved with it. So I think it's good that people are challenging that thought. My personal belief is that it's actually kind of crazy um, to think that the British Empire has had these positive effects. But the point I'm making now is that that's not the right way to think about reparations. Okay, so got, here's an example of what I call the counterfactual observation. This is made in the context of uh, uh, the United States and uh, thoughts about reparations or affirmative actions. Uh, for African Americans in the US. Ellen Frankel Paul. If not for the slave trade, most of the, the, most of the descendants of the slaves would now be living in Africa under regimes known neither for their respect for human rights, indeed for human life, nor for the economic well-being of their citizens. The typical denizen of one of these states, I dare speculate, would envy the condition of the black teenage mother on welfare in one of this country's worst inner cities. That's the US. Starvation, war, tribal depredations, infant mortality, disease, and hopelessness are the standard condition of many regions of Africa, for example, Ethiopia and Somalia. So the thought seems to be that present day generations should be, if not grateful for the fact that their ancestors were slaves, then at least cognizant of the fact that on Frank Hall Paul's claim, they would be worse off if slavery hadn't taken place. Um, there's a particular philosophical variant of this kind of thought, which some of you may have come across, which is known as the non-identity problem. Uh, and this argument makes the claim that historic injustice, and indeed any significant historic event, uh, doesn't just have effects in terms of present-day advantage and disadvantage, but actually makes a determinate difference to who comes into being in the present. Okay, so the argument is here. Unjust actions can make a difference, and if they're sizable, nearly always do make a difference, to who actually exists in later time periods since they affect the circumstances in which procreation takes place. Each individual grows from a particular pair of cells. If their parents had mated at a different time, it's almost certain that a different pairing would have taken place, resulting in a different person. Were it not for the act of injustice in question, present-day individuals would not exist. So how can they claim that they've been harmed? Okay, you see the thought. None of the people currently in the world would have existed were it not for historic injustice, for colonialism. That applies to everyone in Britain and everyone in their former colonies. If we all owe our existence to these events, how can we say that they've harmed us, at least if we assume that it's beneficial to come into existence? I want to pause on this just for a second because 
Our title today is Engaging Theory, and this seems to me a good example of where we should not engage theory. Um, it seems to me incomprehensible that this argument would actually be put forward in a serious fashion in a range of real-world cases, right? So imagine someone who uh, was conceived in the aftermath of the Chernobyl disaster or the Bhopal disaster, for example. And suppose that that person developed serious health problems as a result of those industrial accidents. Now, um, we can stipulate that we think it is not the case that that person would have come into existence had that accident not taken place. But I take it that if we were actually to propose in a public forum that because of the non-identity problem, these people should not be entitled to compensation, we would be, at best, laughed out of the room. So my sense is that even if we can't resolve the non-identity problem, there's actually good reasons when it comes to putting theory and practice together to see it as an interesting paradox rather than something that should actually guide action. This is a claim that is made all the time in relation to climate change as well as historic injustice. As it happens, I think we can argue our way around it. But as, as theorists who are trying to go out into public, I think it may be better if we keep this one to ourselves. <laughs> Okay, so this is kind of the heart of my paper, I guess. So this is what I want to say about compensation. Sorry, one of the two hearts. It's like a time lord for people who watch Doctor Who. Um, I'm going to make four claims about counterfactuals. Um, so all claims about harm and benefit necessarily make reference to some counterfactual state. Okay, so when we're saying that present-day generations have been harmed or benefited, we need to compare the present day to something else. Right? Now, often... When people do that, they think back to a time before the wrongdoing took place. Okay? But there's all sorts of cases where that's not, it turns out that's not the best way to do it, right? And especially when a lot of time has passed. So instead, people often say something like, well, we should look at the most probable outcome that would have taken place if the unjust act hadn't taken place, right? Because, of course, the point here is point two. There are multiple such counterfactuals. There are an infinite number of ways in which an act of injustice might not have taken place, right? The most likely is just one of those. Imagining that things would have been exactly the way they were before is another one. But there's a range, there's an infinite range of different ways in which uh, unjust interaction might not have taken place. And so the claim I want to make now under three is that we shouldn't necessarily make reference to the most probable counterfactual, right? The key is to identify the morally relevant counterfactual. Let me give you an example. This comes from the work of the legal theorist Joel Feinberg. Feinberg gives us an example of a businessman who's trying to catch a plane. Uh, on his way to the airport, uh, let's say he's mugged, okay? So a violent mugger comes up behind him, attacks him, steals his wallet, breaks a few uh, bones, and puts him into hospital. The businessman has to uh, go to hospital, and as a result, he misses his plane. Inevitably, and maybe you can see where this is going, the plane explodes. Uh, there's a bomb on the plane. And it now follows that the mugger has, in a sense, saved the life of the businessman. Were it not for the mugger's intervention, the most likely outcome is that the businessman would have died. It's not necessarily true, of course. Something else could have happened. Maybe his presence on the plane uh, would have made a difference to the bomb going off. Maybe he'd have missed the plane for some other reason. But it looks as if the most likely outcome is that he would indeed have lost his life. But we obviously don't use that as the basis for calculating what the mugger owes to the victim in compensation. Okay? Instead, we construct what Feinberg's, Feinberg calls a doubly counterfactual comparison state, where instead we imagine a case, however unlikely, 
where the businessman got on the plane, but the plane didn't explode. Now, I want to suggest that thinking about the most probable counterfactual is particularly problematic when it comes to cases of exploitation. Okay? Um, especially cases of exploitation that involve, for example, people's productive labor, where people really have made a contribution to an outcome. Simply to imagine a world where that production never happened, where that contribution wasn't made, gets things wrong. Uh, so I think in cases of exploitation in general, and this can be applied to cases of colonialism, the appropriate counterfactual is one whereby the same sort of interaction did take place, but where it was different in character, where it was consensual and non-exploitative. So instead of, for example, imagining a world where there was simply no interaction between the West and their former colonies, or instead of imagining a world where another colonial power comes and does something even worse than what we did, I think the appropriate counterfactual, given existing exploitation, is to think about an admittedly wildly improbable world, but where nonetheless the kind of interaction between the countries in question was just and was consensual, where perhaps people were paid a fair return for their labor. And I think if you do that, you get a completely different perspective on who has benefited and who has lost as a result of historic colonialism. So there's my claim there. In opposition to the counterfactual opposition, the question which, which needs to be asked is, would current generations be better off had historic injustice between colonial powers and their colonies been characterized by consensual and non-exploitative relations? Not, would current generations be better off had there been no interaction between colonial powers and their colonies? So the baseline in the former case is higher, much higher than in the latter case. And I think thinking of it in this way allows us to take an approach to historic injustice, which isn't just the net benefit, net loss kind that we normally think about, right? I think this approach allows us to take account of particular instances of wrongdoing and of suffering. And I think that's how we should think about these cases. Okay, um, I'm gonna try and whiz through the rest fairly quickly, even though it's hugely controversial, Never mind. Um, so I said that was the first question we have to think about in relation to compensation. The second is this. So suppose we accept, that, and it asks a lot, but suppose we accept that we now have an account of who has been harmed and who has benefited as a result of historic injustice. Obviously, that will be a very complicated picture to fill in empirically. But suppose we come to such an account. There is still, I want to suggest, this question of so what, right? And this has become an important question in literature. Does the mere involuntary receipt of benefits give rise to obligations to others to compensate? Okay. Now, it's sometimes thought that it can't do. Um, I have this example here, which is taken initially from Michael Sandel's book on justice. Um, he recounts an example of David Hume, a Scottish philosopher, who uh, had a court case, who's filed suit against the repairman uh, in Edinburgh. Um, this repairman had carried out repairs to Hume's house without Hume's consent. Okay, so he'd come along and repaired Hume's house and then presented him with a bill for payment. Uh, Hume thought this was outrageous. Uh, of course he didn't have to pay for this, uh, these repairs to be carried out to his house, so he sued the guy in court. Uh, Hume argued that allowing people simply to foist benefits upon others in this way and then, extract, and then demand payment was outrageous. It would, re it would reflect, he said, a doctrine quite new and altogether untenable. Now, as you'd expect of a philosopher, it turned out that Hume had completely misunderstood the law. Um, the tradesman was indeed precisely allowed to go and do this in Edinburgh at the time. Uh, there was a city ordinance uh, which was designed to stop buildings falling down, which allowed tradesmen to do this. Uh, 
Hume's opponent in the case has quite a lengthy uh, uh, passage whereby he lambasts the far-flung and hypothetical examples uh, which David Hume used in his argument in favour of his principle. Anyway, um, but you can see Hume's point, right? There's obviously a worry about a situation whereby someone can simply foist the benefit upon us and then ask for payment. I think many of us would have an intuitive reaction that there's something problematic about that sort of case. Well, is this kind of case where we simply receive benefits from past generations akin to that? I think it's not. So this is a claim I'm going to make. As I say, I'll have to do this quickly. Um, I advocate this thing called the beneficiary principle. I think that agents can come to possess obligations to lessen or rectify the effects of wrongdoing perpetrated by other agents by benefiting involuntarily from the wrongdoing in question. And to try and give you some evidence of why I think this, I want to use an example. So this is an example from an American political theorist, Robert Fullenweider, that he wrote actually in the, uh, in the 1970s originally. And this was in the context of a debate in the US about affirmative action. So one of the arguments that supporters of affirmative action often used to make then, they make it less nowadays, um, was that affirmative action was a justified response to historic injustice. And in particular, the philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson argued that um, it wasn't unfair to ask, for example, white males to pay a certain cost in being discriminated against within affirmative action problems because they'd already received a substantial benefit as a result of their race and of their gender. Okay, so Fulham-White is trying to oppose that thought. And his thought is that simply receiving a benefit can't be sufficient reason to give rise to an obligation to others. And here's his example. He says, while I'm away on vacation, imagine, my neighbor contracts with a construction company to repair his driveway. He instructs the workers to come to his address where they'll find a note describing the driveway to be repaired. An enemy of my neighbor, aware somehow of this arrangement, substitutes for my neighbor's instructions a note describing my driveway. Okay, now, we don't know who this enemy is. We can all agree the enemy has done a bad thing and probably should pay for the driveway. But this enemy is out the picture. There is no state compensation scheme to compensate the victims of unjust driveway note switching. Uh, and we can also assume, if you like, that the construction crew on their way back have driven off a bridge and tragically been engulfed in a fireball. Okay? None of that matters. All we have left now is a situation whereby my neighbor has paid for my driveway to be repaired, okay? Fullenweider's claim is that it is obvious, it's obvious, he says, that I don't have an obligation to pay for my neighbor's driveway. It would be a nice thing for me to do, it would be supererogatory in moral terms, but it can't be a duty of justice. That's his claim. I sort of disagree. So here is my example now. So I want to twist it a little bit. So basically, let me show you where this is going. I think that the problem with Fulham Wider's example is that it's not clear whether I even like my new driveway. Okay? So I may have preferred my driveway the way it is. And there is something objectionable, I agree, about then insisting I have to pay for something when it's not clear I've received a benefit. All right? But let's take that out of the picture, because I think then it gets more interesting. So imagine the following. Before I went on holiday, I wrote a letter to the very same driveway repairer asking for my drive to be repaved in exchange for a thousand pounds. However, I forgot to post the letter. I went on holiday, on my return, I see my driveway and I'm delighted by it. I forget I didn't post the letter, you see. Um, so the evil, the evil wrongdoer, right, has switched the notes. My neighbor has paid for my driveway to be repaired, just as in my case. But now I'm stipulating I love the new driveway. 
In fact, initially, I think I paid for it, and I'm delighted. Okay, there's a knock at the door. I assume it's the drive repairer seeking payment. I open the door with a smile on my face, holding an envelope of cash. It's my neighbor. She explains the situation. She asks if I will give her the envelope. Okay, so I think I have a moral duty to give over the envelope. Now, this is something I have found that people disagree about quite a lot. Um, so the best I can do is to try to tell you why I think this, okay? Um, so I think that refusing to hand over the envelope violates a moral imperative against taking advantage of wrongdoing at the expense of its victims. Taking advantage here needn't be an active act. It can consist of a passive refusal to disgorge benefits, okay? So I think there might be all sorts of reasons why intuitively we have reactions to those kinds of cases, where we don't like the idea of people making us give up benefits that we haven't necessarily received. But I certainly think at least this. I certainly think that in my driveway example, you do something wrong if you don't give over the envelope. Now, we might want to argue about whether you violate a moral obligation. We might want to argue about whether it's an enforceable obligation, whether someone else is justified in coming and making you give it up. But I think as a moral agent, you do wrong if you refuse to give over that envelope. If you just, in my thoughts, pretend it's nothing to do with you and go on with your life. And if you don't agree, let me give you one further kind of thought, okay? So suppose that in this example, the evil note switcher is my mother. This is not as counterfactual as you might suppose. <laughs> so my mother has done this, so, not in order to disadvantage my neighbor, but in order to benefit me, okay? My mother then uh, drives away and is engulfed in the same fireball which has taken care of the repairman. She leaves no estate behind her, right? Obviously, I'm sad. I think in that case, it's even clearer to me that I have an obligation to pay over this thousand pounds, right? And I think that failing to do so wouldn't take my status as a moral agent seriously. I would be in some sense vindicating the original unjust act, and I wouldn't be standing in the right relation to it. So here's, I'll just read this out very quickly, the slightly stronger version of my claim, um, slightly fuller version. The individual's duty not to benefit from another's suffering when that suffering is a result of injustice stems from one's moral condemnation of the unjust act itself. Taking our nature as moral agents seriously requires not only that we be willing not to commit acts of injustice ourselves, but that we hold a genuine aversion to injustice and its lasting effects. We make, I think, a conceptual error if we condemn a given action as unjust, but are not willing to reverse or mitigate its effects on the grounds that it's benefited us. The refusal undermines the condemnation. Being a moral agent, I think, means being committed to the idea that justice should prevail over injustice. Okay, I've got maybe a couple of minutes left, do I? Okay, so I just want to say something quickly about responsibility and then about entitlement and then sort of ask an open question about what the hell this all means in practice. So, um, the claim about responsibility is slightly complicated, but I'll try to make it succinctly. So, um, I want to make three claims, which together, I think, lead to what might be a, con a surprising conclusion. And this is about ways in which I think responsibility can pass down across generations. So firstly, and this is an important point, the failure to rectify injustice is unjust. Now that's true by definition, but I think it's something that people have really failed to understand and take seriously. So if I have rectificatory obligations to you and I fail to fulfill them, I wrong you, okay? And so insofar as I continue to fail to fulfill a rectificatory obligation, there is a sense in which my wrongdoing gets worse and worse and worse, okay? So suppose I steal a statue from you and I put it in my front garden. And every day you come and knock on my door and ask for the statue back. And every day I say no to you. 
Every day that happens, I commit a fresh act of injustice. I should have given the statue back, but I don't. And I think that's true also in the case where you're not knocking on my door, right? If I know I should return the statue and I don't, my wrongdoing gets greater and greater, is compounded with the passage of time. I think people often assume that wrongdoing gets less with time. I don't think that's true. It might be contingently that the effects of wrongdoing diminishes with time. But there is at least a sense in which when a wrongdoer fails to right a wrong for which they're responsible, their wrongdoing simply gets worse and, if you like, accumulates. Okay. Now, the accumulation claim isn't necessary here. All you have to accept is that the failure to rectify injustice is unjust. If I have a rectificatory duty, I don't fulfill it, that's a wrong. Secondly, Nations can, in some cases, be held responsible for the effects of the actions of their leaders. Now, we can have a debate in questions about what I mean by nations here. But I take it that it's commonly asserted that we can hold collectives responsible, in at least some situations, for the actions of their leaders. Not, again, necessarily morally responsible. That might be a further question. But at least we think they have a duty to put right things that their leaders have done wrong. Again, people might dispute that, but I think it's a commonly held claim. And thirdly, which is obviously true by definition, nations are composed of overlapping rather than successive generations. Okay. So sometimes when we think about generations, we think about one whole section of society dying and another springing up in its place. Right? But obviously we know that's not how communities really work in practice. Some people are always dying, others are being born or reaching the age of maturity or moral responsibility. So when we look at large communities, they have this kind of slightly shifting identity. Their identity changes in time, but the community remains. Okay, if you accept all three of those, I think it leaves you open to a really quite strong argument for how responsibility for the failure to rectify injustice can pass down across generations. Suppose we have an act of wrongdoing that's perpetrated by a community or by that community's leaders. And suppose we accept that reparations should be paid by that. Right? This isn't in the past, this is in the present. And suppose that reparation isn't paid. Now suppose a day passes. I take it that nothing about the passage of the day means that that obligation lapses. But of course, the identity of the community has changed ever so slightly in the interim. Right? Some people will have died, some people will have been born. Well, this one day later, according to my argument, the community is now guilty of a fresh act of injustice. It should have fulfilled a rectificatory obligation. It hasn't done so. And that is something which now pulls in the new members of the community as well. Right? And so I think you can run this story across time. You can tell a story whereby an ongoing failure to rectify injustice is an ongoing wrong, even when all the people responsible for the original wrong have died. Okay? And I think, I suppose I should finish. So I think that when we think about some instances of colonial wrongdoing, when we look at some forms of continuous administration, think of Britain following the colonial period, following decolonization, for example, you can make that sort of claim. You can make a claim that says that rectificatory obligations should have been fulfilled at the time, and the failure to fulfill them uh, is an ongoing act of injustice, which now incorporates new members of the polity, even those like me who weren't alive at the time where it was originally committed. Okay? And so I do think that there is this sense then in which we're wrong to think that historic injustice can simply be consigned to the past. Insofar as it implicates us in ongoing wrongdoing, insofar as its effects are still extant and some are suffering and others are benefiting relative to the relevant counterfactual, I think we can still have obligations in the present 
even in some cases for wrongs which happened some far in the past.